Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're, You're listening, listening to, to Mumbrella Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast, brought to you by Budget Direct. I'm Tim Burrows. And I'm Vivian Kelly. Joining us to break down the week in media and marketing is Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby. Hello. And Zoe Wilkinson. Hello. Later in the Mumbrella cast, we'll be talking to MNC Saatchi CEO Justin Graham about becoming a CEO in a pandemic. It was a time where collectively we recognised it would be better for the incoming CEO to start to own those decisions. Balancing clients' demands. If they are a marketing agency, that their product has been disrupted unlike any other product I think I've ever worked on. And how COVID is creating opportunities for agencies. I think we're about to go into a golden age of creativity again. But first, the week's topics. News Corp mastheads close and jobs go in one of the worst days for Australian local newspaper journalism. Have we proved that big agency offices just aren't needed anymore? Live sport returns to Australian TV. And the voice is back too. So only one place to start today. The cuts at News Corp, 100 local newspapers closing their print editions, hundreds of jobs going. Uh, Viv, you wrote this breaking story on Thursday morning. Um, let's just start off by rounding out the main changes that News Corp announced. Look, it would be impossible to go through them all, Tim, because it affects over 100 titles across multiple cities. But the main takeaway is 14 titles will completely cease to exist. So that means no print and no standalone digital product. And then most regional and community newspapers are moving to digital only. So if you think about things like the Manly Daily in Sydney, the Rouse Hill Times in Sydney, all sorts of papers will be only online. Let me, um, just to give a bit of context, um, read uh, a quote or a mini editorial from up top of uh, the Crikey newsletter on Thursday, uh, the context they gave it. Australian news journalism has never seen a day as black as today, and not just because News Corp has closed 12 of its 17 regional daily newspapers. Today also demonstrates the grotesque power of one company one family, meaning the Murdochs, of course, to decimate a large slice of a country's news in a single media release. A company worth $16.3 billion run from New York has wielded a knife through large swathes of Australian democracy. Viv, do you agree with those sentiments? Look, I mean, they are very stirring words, aren't they, from a company that's been quite critical of News Corp. But I think that's where a really interesting dynamic emerges. There's a lot of people that are really critical of the News Corp machine, its alleged biases, the way that it wields political power. But when you boil it down to these local titles, they're so important for elderly people who don't have access to the internet and don't want to get a digital subscription to, for example, the Daily Telegraph instead. They're so important for holding local councils accountable and people with small amounts of power in small communities accountable. 
And so many people in media get their first jobs at local papers. So when you're talking about over 500 jobs gone and regional and local communities with no source of local news, then it does have really wide-reaching implications for local democracies, but also giving people the local context for the wider federal democracy. Well, let's come into that in a minute. Let's firstly, I guess, talk about why now? And of course, we've got the economic crisis caused by COVID. But what is the business model behind that local newspaper uh, publishing business? Look, so many of those uh, local papers are free. So people will read them in a cafe or they are delivered to people's homes. So they are reliant on advertising and primarily that advertising would come from small local businesses, which at the moment wouldn't have a lot of cash to splash around with the combined impacts of the bushfires and COVID-19. And of course, uh, the rivers of gold from real estate listings, which again, isn't there at the moment when people don't have confidence in the property market, they don't have a lot of money to splash around and no one really knows what's going to happen next. So it's interesting that, for example, a very, very, very few uh, print products are coming back, including in Sydney, the Mossman Daily and the Wentworth Courier, which is where property prices are highest and some of Australia's wealthiest people live. In smaller communities where the real estate listings might have dried up, there's just no money for these titles anymore. And Hannah, let's bring you in as well, because I suppose this wasn't a complete surprise. We knew that News Corp were thinking about how they were running those businesses. Uh, Once they decided not to sell those titles to Anthony Catalano's Australian Community Media Group. Yeah, it's not a particular surprise. In fact, I think um, at some point during the last two or three podcasts, we probably had a bit of a chat about whether we thought the titles which had been closed just for COVID were actually going to reopen, which is also something we've discussed with some other publishers as well. Um, We knew as well that it was regional titles that were on the chopping block because of those discussions with Anthony Catalano. And in those discussions, one of the things that was flagged was that Anthony Catalano and News Corp couldn't agree on which titles would go across. And I do wonder if that links into what Viv was saying about the titles that will stay, which is, you know, those affluent area titles, which Anthony Catalano, especially given his real estate background, probably wanted to get his little mitts on. Um, I think what's really sad here that we kind of touched on, but in particular, Crikey's got some really specific statistics, 175 regional reporting jobs have gone they're estimating that the total job loss could be closer to a thousand, not just five hundred. Which, if you're looking at a thousand jobs jumping out of the Australian media industry at this time when we've already been quite heavily scalped this year, that's some pretty alarming numbers. Britt, I might bring you in at this point. Your views? Yeah, it's it's not necessarily a surprise, as Hannah said, but it's incredibly devastating, as Viv said, not just for these regions and their populations, but for the industry itself. And I think, as Viv mentioned, you know, it's not just as simple as keeping your same readership pool and pushing them all onto a digital platform. That's not going to happen. You know, people don't have internet. People have patchy internet connections. You know, my nan and pop live in an area that, you know, their local paper is an ACM title but that was one of the non-daily titles paused as part of 
ACM's COVID response and they've just felt kind of completely disconnected from their community as people who read the paper every day and don't have the internet and would never be able to access news online. So it's incredibly sad when I first read reports last night of there being, you know, 500 to 1,000 job losses involved, those those figures are staggering. You almost can't get your head around, you know, cuts of that size. So I think that, you know, saying that this is one of the darkest days we've seen, I don't think that's an exaggeration. Look, I think um, the, the, the thing I find myself uh, contemplating is – the gap that gets left in the future whenever a local newspaper leaves its community Um, because it feels like there is no model that says in the future this is how having a journalist sitting in in the council meeting having uh, the journalist knocking on the door at the police station each morning and doing the calls having the journalist sitting in in the local court every day all of those little pieces of democracy how you uh how you make up that gap you know there isn't there isn't an alternative business model you know there isn't going to be a reporter from facebook or google sitting there for this stuff um and the problem is you know when this stuff goes on without a light being shone upon it we often don't know what we're missing as well I think there's two things to be said there. Um, Firstly, some of the titles that have been listed as ones where a print product won't be returning are some of the titles that News Corp had already flagged as being digital only. Um, Somewhere mid last year, they started that rollout where they were having just one journalist in a regional area running basically an entire digital platform focused on that area. So I think that started in the St. George area and then it also rolled out into Newcastle and some other areas as well. I think that kind of touches on what you were saying, Tim, in that that model, while I can see what they're doing with it and I can see why it's working for them, it doesn't necessarily, having one reporter in an area doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be able to cover everything. And News Corp did very specifically try and get people who were connected in the area and would be able to kind of find those stories, but they're not necessarily always going to have the time to go to every court hearing or to go, you know, to follow up on every story. I think also something really interesting that we've seen is a lot of local publishers in regional areas are already starting to plug those gaps. This happened especially following um ACM's closures or pauses as they are currently being listed. Um, we've seen quite a few regional areas already pop up with new titles, some of them print, some of them digital, and I suspect that's going to be a trend we'll see continue. And there are a couple of things there in that, you know, there's obviously way less overhead, so it's more likely that they'll be able to make that work. But you do wonder if a company like News Corp can't make regional journalism work, how are these other companies going to be able to give it? the best effort. It also means that News Corp's remaining print titles, such as their state-based ones like the Daily Telegraph in Sydney, the Courier Mail in Brisbane, the Herald Sun in Melbourne, are going to sort of double down on that state focus. So Michael Miller, the Executive Chairman of News Corp, with the announcement, said that those papers will become more state-focused with increased regional content and will partner with News Corp's regional and community local titles to ensure that they're delivering the local journalism that these people in these communities need. But 
that sort of changes the whole dynamic of it in that you're asking those local communities to pay a digital subscription for the, for example, online only Sunshine Coast Daily now, but also saying the Courier Mail will be super state focused as well and give you dribs and drabs of this local and regional news. So I wonder then where federal news comes into it. Does News Corp only want people to go to the Australian for that and then we get really, really state-focused with News Corp's print publications across the country? So it, it does really change where consumers are being directed for their news and the breakdown of how News Corp's allocating those resources. And I suppose the other question on your point around digital subscriptions is... I totally get the logic of trying to persuade people to subscribe and, you know, subscribe to your local publication and also get the Metro publication too. Will it work though? Is there much evidence so far that people will subscribe or are willing to subscribe to the community titles information? Look, I think if you ask News Corp, they'd say yes, and they'd say that they've gone down this path because they've finally gotten paywalled news content to work across publications such as the Daily Telegraph and the Australian. And Michael Miller also noted in his press release about this announcement that they have actually launched a number of digital-only titles recently, so not ones that used to be print but ones that are now in existence only as and only ever as digital publications. I think people might give it a go, but the longer-term trend just isn't there to know whether people that used to read the Sunshine Coast Daily and the Manly Daily and all those other titles across regional Queensland and whatnot are going to pay long-term for these products in a way that used to be subsidised with real estate listings. You know, there's you've got to get quite a few more subscriptions to make up for the number of advertisers that they won't have anymore. Well, speaking of advertisers, um, Hannah, brand advertisers, um, over the last year or two we saw the Boomtown Initiative do quite a good job in getting that message out that advertisers were not taking regional audiences seriously enough, were not actually spending a large enough proportion of their budgets. Is some of this the fault of short-sighted advertisers and short-sighted media agencies who did not give local newspapers the support that they deserved? I'm not sure to answer your question, but I think I think what we've seen and we've kind of probably mentioned this before now, but I think what we've seen is what's been an ongoing downturn in ad spend across the board, not just, you know, in regional areas, although obviously regional areas are being hit worse. But also, if you look at some of the numbers that have come out of News Corp just over the last month, if they like specifically in April, they've lost 40% of their ad revenue across that month. And those are the preliminary numbers we're going to start seeing from COVID. Those that's, you know, just the beginning is more than one media company has told us. So I think even if these publications were definitely financially viable before COVID, it's very hard to see how they can be after COVID without a lot of effort. And as you said, yes, there have been initiatives like Boomtown, which obviously did fantastic work. But I think 
the fact that we need to have initiatives like Boomtown to drive spend into regional areas just shows that it isn't a focus for brands for one reason or another. And we can't kind of sit back and say, oh, well, it's the brand's fault because they haven't spent enough money in these areas when there's probably a whole lot of complicated things at play in there. Look, Tim, Hannah might not be sure if brands are to blame for not supporting regional papers sufficiently enough, but somebody in the Mumbrella thread called hmm, that's hmm with four M's and a full stop is sure. So hmm with four M's and a full stop says so many advertising agencies lamenting the loss of these titles and jobs, but how many considered leader titles or regional print as part of their strategies? How many gave these titles the time of day or made a booking? If you didn't support, then don't be surprised when it's too late. So I'd say that that sentiment does exist and uh, somebody else has commented underneath that sort of saying that it was West Farmers and Woolies that were propping up uh, these publications and they slashed their marketing budgets a few years ago apparently, which is uh, why these regional publications can't, can't keep going. Look, it's that in government spend. I was looking, as you know, I'm in Tasmania at the moment. I was looking at my copy of the the Bernie Advocate, which I was reading online today, but the the facsimile edition, and it felt like every other ad was from the Tasmanian government. Various kind of safety messages around COVID, but it it is it's an ACM title, and it felt like that would not be a viable publication without government spend as well. Um, just moving the conversation on a bit around News Corp, uh, Foxtel, two thirds owned by News Corp, had been a big profit driver. Uh, not so much these days, struggling to hang on to subscribers, struggling to adjust to the the challenges of this world. Um, uh, probably just over a week ago, since um, we've not spoken about it yet on the podcast, um. Hannah, um, the latest sort of play from News Corp and Foxtel is 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 Binge, their new streaming service. Yes, Binge. Um, so Binge launched uh, Monday, and it is essentially copying the KO model, but for entertainment. So it's kind of TV shows and movies from you know, the partners that Foxtel does have, which luckily for Foxtel still includes HBO. They've got a couple of different packages. It starts from $10 a month. um, And they're reporting that for that low, low price, you will get 10,000 hours worth of content. We've known this has been coming for a while, although I was talking to somebody about it and they were like, oh, it seems weird that they waited so late into the coronavirus pandemic to launch this, which it does kind of seem weird, but, you know, maybe things weren't ready before that. And obviously Foxtel has had some bigger issues up until this point. I think what is concerning probably for Foxtel is KO has really struggled in the last couple of months. Again, we haven't been able to see the full figures because when the last lot of reporting came out, it was very early on in the pandemic. But KO has lost a massive amount of subscribers. It's hemorrhaging numbers. So I think if binge isn't able to kind of live up to the success, early success KO has and instead responds, kind of sees a response from the market that's more reflective of what a lot of other media platforms are seeing at the moment, it's going to be a bit of a concerning time for Foxtel. 
Yeah, look, I um uh, just before recording this, I, I I made a quick dash to my local general store, and I I couldn't help but notice there were uh, a couple of uh, packages waiting to uh, be sent back, which were people who were returning their foxtail boxes. So um, it certainly feels like it's not just uh, KO and it's sports heavy heavy content. You know, the challenge for for news course still is what will people pay that hundred dollar plus subscription for for foxtail and then of course the question for for news core is when something like foxtail which was always a, a cash driver becomes something that costs money uh you've got the same challenges for newspapers is where does news core actually look to for its profit driver that feels like a good question, Tim, and I feel like you're leaving a silence for Brittany, myself, or Hannah to answer that, and I don't think we're paid enough to decide how <laughs> News Corp makes a profit. I I feel like I'd be up for Michael Miller's job if we knew how they were going to emerge from this. Well, just before we get off the topic of News Corp, there was one bright spot this week with news breaking that the AFP, uh, the Australian Federal Police, uh, will not be laying charges against News Corp's national political editor, uh, Annika Smethurst. Um, Brittany? Yeah, that's correct, Tim. I mean, it's good news. It was certainly welcomed by News Corp themselves, by the ABC, which of course was also raided the day after Annika Smethurst's house was raided last June, and by the union. I guess the concern is still the ABC journalists for their separate reporting on the Afghan files. The same decision hasn't been made for them yet. They still don't know if they'll be charged. And the union particularly vocal about the fact that laws that led to those raids that allow, you know, the prospect of charges to be laid in the first place still exist. So it's it's definitely, I'm sure, a sigh of relief for Annika Smethurst in what must have been an incredibly stressful year or almost year for her and also News Corp. But I don't think that it's celebration in so far as, you know, the coast is clear for journalists moving forward. Next, the week in advertising. So what's been going on in advertising then this week, Zoe? So this week in the lead up to the winter football seasons returning, we've seen a couple of ads hit the air in light of the football seasons, but not for the football codes themselves. Uh, The first one is from Tab. If shaving off our quarantine beers would help, we'd do it today. But instead, the solution is downloading that COVID app. And not so we can get back to work faster, or because it'll make bureaucrats grin, but so we can get back to our rightful place in the stands, cheering. So this ad from MNC Saatchi is actually tab encouraging football fans to download the COVID Safe app. The reason for that being the more people who download the app, the more likely the government will continue to ease restrictions and the sooner that football fans will get back in the stands at the stadiums. And interesting because this one has it's become a bit political really, hasn't it? So it's interesting that effectively uh, Tab have entered into the politics of it by, by taking this approach. Yes, I mean, we've seen a couple of brands get behind the COVID safe app. I mean, 
I'm probably not the only one who's received text messages from their telco telling them to download COVID Safe. We've also seen fast food restaurants tweet about the COVID Safe app. I think what's different about the tab ad is that this has a very specific motivation. So with the NRL coming back this weekend, starting on the 28th of May and the AFL coming back on the 11th of June, the games will start, but the crowds will not be able to return to the stadiums. And I think as any football fan will tell you, that's a big part of the experience of supporting the football, being able to go to live matches. And so I think Tab's really drawn a line between COVID safe and getting to the place that we all really want to be. But instead, they'll be sitting at home drinking in front of the television. Well, funny you say that, Tim, because the other football-related ad that has come out this week was from Drinkwise. We've all done a great job working together to stay safe, but we have to keep looking after one another. Stay healthy and exercise. And if you're having a drink, make sure it's in moderation. We won't be benched for much longer, and hopefully you won't be either. So regardless if you're on my team... My team or any other... Let's help each other stay strong, positive and resilient. Uh, This campaign is from Enthrall and sees the Collingwood coach Nathan Buckley and Richmond captain Trent Cotchen telling Australians that while we feel like we're benched, football pun, at the moment, uh, it's important that Australians continue to drink safely, drink in moderation and uh, even when the football starts and even when people are able to leave isolation and enjoy a game and a drink with their friends. And sports people are always so natural when they perform in front of the camera. Well, Nathan Buckley and Trent Cotchen are quite big names in the league and I would say they've done a fair bit of media work in their time. So they're probably not the worst football personalities to bring into an ad. I mean, I would say... That would have been one of the better performances you could have gotten out of a football player. But um, it's it, what's interesting to me here is whether, I mean, they are such recognisable characters, but will they carry the influence in this ad for people to take their advice seriously and continue to drink safe? Or does it come across as kind of not particularly relatable, especially considering the regulations that football leagues have on their players specifically not being able to drink during the seasons. And then more on uh, the general vibe of advertising in the time of the coronavirus. Uh, we've got a little, uh, a little message from Australia Post. We wanted to mark this moment in our history. So we've created a national letterbox where you can share your experience of this time in a letter which we'll preserve for future generations. We look forward to hearing from you. Love, Australia Post. Yes, so this campaign from Australia Post, which was created by the monkeys, sees them open up a public letterbox. So they're trying to encourage Australians to send them letters describing their experiences in isolation. So it can be anything from a letter. You can submit your child's drawing, anything like that. 
to the um, public post box so that they can record this moment in history. So alongside the launch of the post box has been this campaign, which is sort of shot from the eyes of a postie going past everyone's house, seeing neighbours interact over the fence or seeing families have breakfast out on their front porch. And I guess that's another interesting example we've seen now of how we're putting ads into production in the time of COVID and keeping people socially distant. And interesting, when we look back at the Tab one, the Australia Post one, both times it's basically, it's a, it's a long form piece of copy being read aloud. And I, I must admit, I, I found myself wondering, and I'm not sure if this is a comment or a criticism, I guess it's a criticism. When I hear this sort of copy now, I tend to almost hear it in the voice of the agency rather than the brand. So um, you hear the, the the tab one and it feels very much you're hearing the voice of the copywriter at MNC Saatchi. When you hear the Australia Post one, you think, oh, that's classic monkeys. And I'm not sure if that actually is a good thing, really, when it actually feels that the the voice of the agency is a stronger brand position than the voice of the brand. Yeah, I think it's definitely something brands will have to be conscious of going forward because with the way that production is done now, we are seeing a lot of, you know, long pieces of footage with a long overvoice over the top. So I think it will be something that brands have to be conscious of to make sure that they're injecting their own sort of personality and tone of voice moving forward. Next, footies back. The Mumbrella Awards celebrate and champion the best, bravest and brightest work across the entire industry, offering up 30 categories from media, marketing, advertising, PR and production. It's time to start working on your entries. The first entry deadline is just a matter of weeks away. Go to mumbrella.com.au slash Mumbrella Awards for more information. As we record this on Thursday, we're just a few hours away from what has become an unexpectedly big moment in the TV year. Tonight sees the NRL return in the Eastern States in particular. This is a big moment for Nine and for Foxtel, and I guess Foxtel's KO as well, as we've been discussing. Um, Hannah, um, I can't make up my mind. I was, I, I was chatting to a, a friend who likes NRL a lot more like me. His theory is the viewing will be massive to begin with, as there's just there'll just be so much curiosity about being back. But then very quickly it will start seeing a bit repetitive and a bit lacking in atmosphere with empty stadiums, etc. Is this going to be the ratings blockbuster that Nine are hoping for? Firstly, before I start, I would just like to say that in the script you have throw to Hannah for appropriate NRL wisdom. And for anyone who's <laughs> expecting NRL wisdom from me, they're going to be looking for a while. Um, it's kind of interesting. Hey, yeah, I'm not asking you to decide whether the, the Eels or the Broncos <laughs> will win tonight. Wow. Um, I think it's interesting because what we've seen over the last couple of years has been sport has just not performed as well for TV, especially network TV, as it did in the past. You know, State of Origin obviously still brings in the big numbers, but these NRL matches just aren't bringing in the numbers that they once were. I have heard so many people agree with that, that when the teams are playing in front of empty stadiums or, you know, whatever weird technological 
um, decision they make on whether they're going to put people in the stands by hologram or whatever it is, I think it seems quite unlikely that you're going to get the same game as you would when they're in front of a cheering crowd. And therefore, I do kind of agree that maybe this season is going to be lacking something. However, in saying that, we've also seen some really interesting TV things happen this year. You know, MasterChef suddenly out of the gate had a spectacular season that nobody was necessarily expecting. But yeah, so to be honest, I wouldn't even be that surprised if suddenly NRL returns and two million people are watching it. I would kind of just take it in the weird coronavirus universe, but I don't know whether it's going to suddenly magically fix all the problems that the TV networks have been having. Look, Viv, I suppose as as much as anything, uh, James Warburton over at Seven will be watching the NRL numbers and keeping his fingers crossed that when AFL comes back, um, it augurs good news for Seven as well. Yes, look, there's there's so much at play here because so much of the atmosphere of football on television is the crowds and neither the AFL nor the NRL can have that. So both networks will be trying to experiment with how do you build that atmosphere, how do you build that drama, how do you build that suspense without tens of thousands of people in the crowd. Now, luckily or unluckily for James Warburton at seven, NRL is going first. So perhaps Seven can learn from any mistakes that Nine makes, any awkward, clunky coverage things that they try that don't work. You know, we're reading about fake crowd noise being added to broadcasts. So James can let Hugh Marks and Nine play around with that and then perhaps just take what works and not bother with anything that we all decide, oh, that's terrible. So I think he's probably quite fortunate in in getting to go second. I suppose. And there's also this giant irony of spending so many months saying they've got the Olympics in July, which became a bit of a running joke for us. And now it would seem that perhaps they're filling that gap with the AFL instead. Yes. Well, you know, I think Seven's had time to come to terms with the fact that it doesn't have the Olympics in July anymore. Even if the AFL does really well, it won't pull the consistent numbers that the Olympics would have because it's not all day every day. It's not multiple channels. It's not a short burst and people across the entire country just aren't as invested in AFL as they would be in a once in a four-year event like the Olympics. But they are fortunate that the AFL can return because I'm really not sure what else Seven would have done other than lots and lots of Big Brother. And Hannah, um, we spoke about nine, we spoke about seven. Uh, ten, MasterChef's been doing really well. Um, I think if, I'm, if, if I recall correctly, at least one day this week they, they did it over a million Metro viewers. Do you think that is the absence of sport on the other networks? Is that helping ten? That's a really interesting statement you put forward there, Tim. I think if you were to ask 10, they might tell you that they always do quite well without sport. Um, That's their entire platform for the beginning of each year. I don't know whether a lack of sport on TV has weirdly driven people to a nightly cooking show, but I I go back and forth on MasterChef. Part of me thinks maybe... As similar to what we were saying about the NRL, a lot of people tuned in at the beginning hoping to see some sort of train wreck and then were like, oh, it's actually pretty good. 
or whether it is just the All Stars format. But yeah, it's been performing incredibly well for Ten. It's Ten have pushed very close to some nightly wins, which this time last year they were definitely not doing. So, and they've got to be happy that they're not having to have all this back and forth. If you looked at how publicly the nine NRL train wreck happened in front of the media, I think Ten are probably pretty happy they don't have to deal with that. And Viv, you wrote the rating story this week for the return of The Voice, um, which was good news for nine and um, conversely bad news for seven. Well, look, the the voice returned to 1.012 million Metro viewers, which was weirdly the same as last year's premiere. And look, anything that's the same or about the same at the moment is a success because normally it's very easy to say that a premiere has declined on prior years. So for The Voice, which is back for its ninth season somehow, we've already had eight seasons, uh, back for its ninth season to stay above 1 million Metro viewers is good. Uh, And then later in the week, so not even the premiere episode, but on Tuesday night, uh, The Voice maintained a relatively high audience of 988,000 Metro viewers, which was, you know, more than double that of Seven's House Rules, which had 465,000 in the same time slot. So that's two ageing franchises, two franchises that the commercial networks rely on, and yet there's such a stark difference. And on that same Tuesday night, MasterChef had 920,000. So you've got two networks pushing the 1 million Metro viewers mark, not for a premiere, just for a regular Tuesday night outing. And unfortunately for seven, house rules in that same environment only had 465 across the five capital cities. Next, do we even need offices anymore? We had an intriguing guest post this week from Jules Hall, who owns The Hallway, which is one of Australia's biggest independent agencies. Even when they can, they won't be going back to the office. Uh, As Jules wrote in our article, in the old world, work was somewhere you went. In the new normal, work is something you do. And in our new world, we've discovered that it doesn't matter where you are. Do we agree? Um, I completely agree with this. I think um, I think employers are going to have such a struggle getting people to come back to the office after this. I think unless you're working in a role where you've had some serious meltdowns or obviously I'm speaking from the very privileged position of someone who does not have small children and also is the only one working from home at this time. So it's been really great for me, but I'm sure there are plenty of people who it hasn't been great for. Um, but I think we've seen this sentiment echoed across the world really we've seen a lot of the big tech companies tell people they're going to be able to work from home forever I think Twitter started the trend on that one and then I think Facebook is uh, moving a lot of their workforce to do the same thing I also think as we start to see companies realize that they can have smaller office spaces they don't necessarily have to be covering a lot of you know desks that won't always be filled they don't necessarily have to be replacing equipment as often it might be something that we start seeing people embrace more and hopefully it'll start allowing more flexible working conditions for people. Um, so, yeah, I 100% agree, and I think um, the future of work after this is going to be very interesting. 
I think it takes quite a bit of self-reflection and humility to an extent to go into a leadership meeting in which you're expecting to devise a plan to get everyone back into the office and to end that meeting realising, hey, maybe we're going to be mainly remote from now on and maybe our office is just there for when and if we need it. There, there must be a lot of inertia from other agencies that perhaps aren't as small or nimble as the hallway is as an independent. I'm not sure how many employees Jules and his team have, but I can't imagine kind of holding companies getting to this point so quickly. But I think Hannah's completely right in that we're an industry that I think likes to throw the the word flexibility around a lot. And it is a buzzword. We like to say that we're doing everything we can to protect people's mental health. I think for most people, they fall into a into a bucket of either this time being really good for their mental health, working from home and achieving a true sense of work-life balance and not just something that, you know, is a mystical far-off idea that, you know, you're never going to see your kids and you're never going to have a chance to get your housework done or tidy. And then there's people who it must have been really difficult for, which I think agency leaders have been quick to acknowledge that, you know, some of their team are isolating alone and don't have much human contact And of course, their situation would be different once they could see friends and go out on the weekend and all of those sorts of things. But some people just inherently don't like it. So I think ultimately, this idea that the office is there, if you need it, if your team needs it, it's there. But if it's better for you to work from home this week, if your kids are sick, if you have appointments that it's easier to work around living where you live, why why can't we do that if the work is still the same and the output is still the same and clients if you're an agency are ultimately happy i mean that's that should be the measure of success it's worth noting that Jules and the hallway surveyed their staff and found that 97% of them enjoyed working remotely and 77 don't want to return to normal office working that is a, you know, it's not the silent majority there. That's the overwhelming majority who are obviously surviving and thriving in the in the work from home environment. And I think because so many people, politicians and business leaders especially, are so keen to be seen to be doing something and getting the nation back on track that they can become fixated on everything will be fine if we're all just back sitting in those office towers. People will feel normal. They'll start spending again. They'll forget that there's been hundreds of thousands of deaths and we can all just move on. So I think it's good that Jules and the hallway have acknowledged here that it's not necessarily about that. There's other things we can do to stay connected. There's other things we can do to get the economy going. We don't just have to get back to what we were doing before just for the sake of it, if people don't want it and if businesses don't need it. Look, and I'd say that Jules is not the only one thinking this way. Uh, I was chatting to the boss of another independent agency, reasonably big one, um, who this, this was even a couple of weeks ago, thinking in a very similar way, you know, the lease on their office space, and I won't, won't say which city it's in, runs out um, in, a, in a few months' time. They will not be renewing their lease. They'll go for a much smaller space. They'll make it look really impressive. They'll ask everybody to come in once or twice a week to be briefed on what they're doing. It'll be a good space for meeting clients in and all of that, but there will not be an individual desk for everybody. Um, 
And the way they're thinking about it is they'll pay their staff some sort of allowance, maybe $3,000 a year or something like that to, you know, have the right facility, the right office facilities at home, you know, up to date computer or whatever it is. Um, and the idea being that will be how it will be from now on. They, you know, they've, they've, they've demonstrated it's not there. Um, but the one, the one thing that, um, uh, I found interesting was I I moderated a panel on Friday a, a, a Zoom panel um, for the AADC the Adelaide Advertising and Design Club and it was a it was a really good panel and it had a mixture of um, sort of bosses from around the world including a number of people from big uh, networks and they seemed and I put that idea and that thinking to them and they seemed a lot less into the idea so I don't know if that's just a sort of difference in speed of thinking when you work for a big global network or they're just sort of thinking through wider practicalities than we are but it it it, it doesn't feel like the we, we, we're going to necessarily see easy mass change from the established groups yeah and I think uh, there's this embedded very old-fashioned I would argue very misguided idea among you know some people and some leaders that people will take advantage of working from home or quote unquote working from home is actually kind of just lying in bed and maybe sending a few emails and then knocking off for the day. I think if the last couple of months have taught us anything, it's that hopefully that's not the case. And if it is in your business, I think you've got bigger issues. But I think you're right in that there's going to be more inertia from big companies and big holding groups, but they're almost the ones that need to be thinking about this the most. I mean, WPP have flagged that they need to achieve in this market $70 million in cost savings. Now, sure, a huge chunk of that is from pay cuts and salary raise pauses and those things. But they've also said that they're reviewing you know, their leases and their premises and that kind of a thing. They need to be thinking about that kind of long term. I mean, as Viv mentioned, if you've got huge overheads, huge rents, huge electricity costs, and you're suddenly able to kind of outsource those to your employees but still get the same output, why would you not be seriously considering that as a good long-term solution? I think also what's kind of interesting to flag is one person's version of a flexible workplace is not another person's version. I was speaking to an a media company which will remain unnamed at the beginning of this pandemic and they were like oh we've been allowing people to work flexibly for ages and I was like oh I don't know that you think that that means what it, it does mean um but what will be really interesting I think out of this is we've seen a lot of companies especially ones that are struggling like Brit mentioned say that they're going to stop unnecessary travel, say they're going to stop unnecessary entertainment, say that, you know, we now have realized which of these meetings could have been an email. And I think if that continues and if there's a lot more pushback on people to say, okay, well, you don't actually need to go to Melbourne for meetings, you can just do them remotely, it's going to be really hard to also tell those people, you still need to come into the office though, because, you know, if you're not getting to have the fun, why do you want to come into the office? Well, one question I do have though is, it, I, I can see how it makes sense when you've, you've you've got a team that they know each other really well, they've got a rhythm together. What happens when somebody new joins an organisation? How do they get to know people? How do they become actually a part of the culture when they're just 
you know, logging on a few times of the day. Viv, I hope you've got an answer to that one. (laughs) Yeah. Do you not think, though, that this opens up the opportunity for us to stop making people be employed in just Sydney and Melbourne? Like, imagine if people could live somewhere that they could afford property. Imagine if people didn't have to keep congregating on the east coast of Australia. That would be terrible for Sydney real estate prices. (laughs) What what heresy you're saying. You know, so we have technology that's better than ever before and it's only going to get better. You know, the speed of change is absurd. Next year, who knows what it will be. So this idea that we can only connect with people if we're forced to sit in a boardroom with them, share the fruit bowl and endure awkward get-to-know-you drinks, (laughs) if that's the case, then we all need to work on our social skills and our utilisation of technology more. Yes, it's easier to connect in person in a lot of ways, but if you put in more effort and don't just make the dial in two minutes a day, I hope you're fine, bye, have a properly structured, technologically enabled induction process, then it, it can work. I think there's so much opportunity to better our employment market and spread our wealth throughout the country if we start doing this more seriously. Not even just that, you can also pay those people less. So again, for these big companies who are <laughs> complaining that they've got too much overheads, if you're going to let me live somewhere where I can pay a quarter of the rent I have to pay, I'm going to be more than happy for you to drop my pay a little bit and take off the Sydney tax. Like, yeah, <laughs> no, 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 let's, let, let's not, speaking of someone who's in Tasmania at the moment, let's not go too far with that one. <laughs> I think also, I mean, in a way, it's it's kind of big businesses catching up. Like this isn't a new idea. I mean, there's plenty of freelance journalists, freelance PR practitioners who have been working from home for years and years and years and are like, hey, guys, welcome to the party. We've been doing it. We know it works. We can go to clients. We can go to meetings when we need to. But the rest of the time, you know, if I'm sitting on a computer typing and working, why should that be kind of in the CBD as opposed to in my home? Um And look, I think that in terms of the logistics of it, I mean, if if social distancing is going to be enforced on public transport and going to be enforced in office buildings and enforced in lifts, the the sheer logistics of getting from your home to the office for the foreseeable future, I can imagine will be really difficult. If you've got a bus that can only seat 10 people or a train where carriage capacity is, you know, cut in half or quartered, then, you know, you're going to be waiting and you're going to be waiting a long time and so is everyone else. And then you get to the office and you're waiting for a lift. I mean, there was some office building company that said that lift times could be up to an hour. So, look, I think that there's a lot to consider. I just think that it's great that the hallway has actually considered it as opposed to jump to the, no, it's too hard basket. We have an office. We will use it. And Hannah, just finally on this one, everyone's wading in. What do LinkedIn have to say about it? So I just opened my LinkedIn during this conversation and was sent I'm sorry, were we boring you? (laughs) Was sent what I can only presume to be was a horrible targeted (laughs) piece of information from them, which says, beware of permanent work from home. And they, Tim, are siding with you in saying that there will be a decay in culture as out-of-office workers face increased isolation, distractions, and blurred lines between work and home life. So two sides to this argument. However, please, no more forced getting to know yous. 
Next, Viv talks to the new boss of MNC Saatchi in Australia. I'm joined now by MNC Saatchi's incoming CEO, Justin Graham. Justin, welcome to the Umbrella Cast. Great to be here. Thank you. Now, we're finally recording after a number of tech issues and trying to get this damn thing to work. We think we've got there. Aside from the joys of the Umbrella Cast, how are you finding working from home and dealing with all of the remote issues as a, as a new leader of an agency? Yeah, it's quite an extraordinary time to to take on a leadership role like a, a group CEO. Um, I'm probably like everyone else. You have great days where you feel like you're being more productive and you're engaging with people in a different way and then you have difficult days where you're yearning for more connection. I think there's, what do they say, habits form within 21 days and we're well past that now. So it feels like uh, it, it is a new normal, it's a new rhythm. Uh, but certainly uh, my personality is one that is really yearning to get back into the office uh, and I'm increasingly having walking meetings uh, at a physical distance that's lawful with with staff and with clients and with partners in the industry and certainly enjoying that connection again. Um, it's also helpful. I've got three girls under 10 uh, and all three of them are back at school this week. So that also allows us to have podcasts like this at home without the sound of uh, some extra extra annoyances in the background. Look, personally, I would have loved the the cameos from the Graham children, but I guess we can uh, survive without that. Now, look, you, there were sort of succession plans already in place for MNC Saatchi with the departure of former CEO James Leggett, but when the agency group announced you as, as the new leader, they did sort of say that the announcement was accelerated due to the unprecedented circumstances resulting from COVID-19. Why was that decision made? You know, I would have thought that this is a crazy time, as you said, to take over an agency. What made it the right time? Yeah, I think there's, uh, you know, succession something that MNC Saatchi value a lot. You know, we turned 25 this year, 25 years young as a business in Australia and globally, and, and I'm actually only the third CEO uh, of, of the agency. And when you think about that compared to some of our competitors in the market, there's some significant stability there. And you know, thinking back to um, all the brilliant work that Tom Derry did and then James Leggett being in that role for the last uh, you know, seven or eight years, uh, and I've been with the business for six years. So it's been something that we've been building towards for a significant amount of time. Uh, and at a time where uh, we knew that there was going to be decisions made around the business at an accelerated pace around how we were going to come out of this, uh, it was a time where collectively we recognised it would be better for the incoming CEO to start to own those decisions and to be able to, to move that forward as opposed to a confusing time for people where decisions around costs and uh, change and people management and how we engage with clients uh, weren't necessarily going to be seen through. So um, it, it was something that was brought forward only by a matter of months, and uh, something that James spoke to and spoke to with great transparency actually to our uh, all our, our staff internally and, and I think has been well received that 
Uh, it's a time of change and a time for, for, for leadership to continue moving forward with someone that they know very well and have seen, I guess, build into that position over, over the last year. Now, you had quite a close partnership with James in your previous role with the agency. Is there anything you're looking to change is, or evolve with the agency now that you're in the top job? Yeah, I think there's uh, MNC Saatchi is this, I guess, extraordinary business that's had long-term clients, as I said, stability of leadership, uh, but we are tenacious and audacious, I guess, in, in continuing to evolve. Uh, and you've seen that and we've talked about that in the past. You know, internally, we talk about being home of the creative entrepreneur uh, and we continue to invest in what I would consider to be our, our playground. So emerging parts uh, of our business on how brands will engage with client, with customers, sorry, in the future. Uh, and I will continue to accelerate that. That's something that we'll continue on. And we've, we've got our ventures business. We have this film studio. So we continue to do feature length films and documentaries that move forward. Um, we'll continue to integrate in different ways and we'll look for opportunity. And I think if there's one point of acceleration for us, it's very much in the um, the area around driving customer centricity. So the centre of our business, we have the capabilities that sit within different parts of our business, but we need a focus on marketing technology that we haven't had in the past. Uh, so if there's an area to push forward in, that will certainly be a place that we are actively exploring and continuing to provide to our, our clients and will be a bigger part of our future than, than in the past. And how about the agency culture? How would you describe, uh, you know, under normal circumstances when you're not all stuck at home and in lockdown, how would you describe MNC Saatchi's culture? Yeah, it's interesting. I think it's a, it is interesting that you phrase that around when you're not stuck uh, at home because it's all I've seen the culture just flourish actually over the last eight weeks uh, and it's it is an entrepreneurial culture it's made up of leaders that have come in and built their own businesses uh, in rare cases been acquired like a bohemia but in most cases have organically grown uh, so there's this brilliant tapestry of subcultures that exist across MNC Saatchi and different people will engage with those either directly or um, as a whole overall. And it's been a culture that, that recognises that we play a pretty important role in society, certainly with our size and with the clients that we have, and we've increased that through this time. Um, but it's been an extraordinary uh, culture which maybe I guess, stems from the Saatchi days many years ago around this um, ability to go and make the impossible possible. Uh, and I've seen that over and over again in this time from a production point of view, from an insight gathering point of view, from a collaboration point of view. Uh, and we also have, and I brought this in, we have every Friday we have a leadership team video that goes out to everyone. It's a fair representation of people across the business that do recorded videos that we pull together. And when someone's stuck by themselves just with their iPhone in front of them having to record how their week's going, you really do see their personality. And when you actually pull those together and try and entwine that into a story, you see how diverse the culture is. And that, that makes us what we are. Uh, and it's, it's been great to see. And, and you know, when we've, we've had a, a number of Zoom calls where 450 people have logged in and you see the ticker going over of all the people coming on in the last few minutes and they've got their 
uh, drinks in hand and their pets sitting on their laps and their kids running in the background and they're all eager to engage in that forum. It's so similar to what we would have normally around how MC Touch to come together, usually within our Macquarie Street offices. So uh, it's flourishing at the moment and, and I feel very uh, privileged to be able to go and take that forward. I think if there's going to be a, a word uh, that people have, I guess, described about me, but certainly something that I would expect of the leaders and of the culture moving forward, it's one of empathy and empathy around understanding the role that everyone brings into the organisation and that's a responsibility of leadership to be able to bring that together. And I'm certainly seeing that at a time where empathy is needed more than ever as everyone's going through difficult times in different ways. And you mentioned Bohemia there, which is a media agency you guys acquired back in February 2017. Now, I was only sort of two and a half months, if that, into the job uh, of editor of Mumbrella at that time. So I probably failed to appreciate um, how significant that was. I recall that we were at our retail marketing summit, which seems like a distant dream at the moment, an, an event packed with hundreds of people. And then the news came through that you, you'd made this purchase of this media agency. How's that going in terms of uh, culture that we were just speaking about? Because an indie startup media agency is quite different than a decades-old creative agency. How have you brought them together? Look, it's been... It's been a great journey, actually, for us uh, and Brett and James and Chris at the time, now Sophie Price and uh, a number of other those leaders are, 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 are great creatively led media thinkers. And Brett is a brilliant entrepreneur himself and has obviously displayed that work with some big organisations and actually gone out and done something that a lot of people say they want to do, uh, but, but for whatever reason, don't get to go and do that or, or have the drive to do that. So... I think there's been uh, a number of ways that they've contributed to both our culture, um, certainly contributed to our performance and importantly delivered to our product as well. So you know, we have um, we've brought connections planning that stems out of Bohemia right through our organisation now as a way to think around how we change the shape of our ideas. We're increasingly working in a joined up manner where uh, we have representatives and we don't really think about whether they're coming from Bohemia or where it is because it all sits under the MNC Saatchi banner at the end of the day. Uh, but we've been able to bring people that are more proficient around thinking around growth and how creativity can drive growth and then how you go and connect with consumers through that customer journey and change the shape of those ideas, as I said. You know, we've got a number of clients now where that is very much a joined up opportunity for us uh, and probably will be a bigger part of what we do in the future. And I also said, I think I said this publicly when we first uh, brought the guys into, into the family as well, was I had this desire that data and insight would just flow through all of MNC Saatchi and we know that media agencies are just full of that. We know that they prioritise that and often it gets locked in the wrong places. Uh, so if we can bring it forward through, it, through a big creative business like MNC Saatchi and all the different parts of that, whether it be our sport and entertainment or film or research or brand design, et cetera, um, that can only be a good thing. And we've still got a long way to go around that piece. Um, but they are people that have had uh, experience in the past at working on significant culturally relevant brands like the ones that we work on in the creative business. 
Um, so actually the partnership has been very good and I think it probably comes down to the leaders more than anything else. And what about your clients? You've got quite a mix who must be dealing with the pandemic in quite different ways. You know, you've got someone like Tourism Australia that's obviously can't do a whole lot at the moment simply because people can't travel. And then you've got other clients that presumably have increased activities and increased demand. So what does that look like for you as an agency? Yeah, uh, it looks very busy. (laughs) And some phenomenal effort and collaboration going on. Uh, I, I guess it's been... There's been a couple of phases. There's been the immediate piece, and I should, I'll should i just step back for a second. I think, you know, it's fascinating in these times where we think as humans around the essentials. Uh, and for us and for everyone, I guess, it's been the essentials around needing to have food, uh, needing to work out what we're going to do with our money in a constrained environment and needing to communicate. And for us, as we think around Woolworths, the Commonwealth Bank and Optus in particular, um, you know, I think they've done a phenomenal job and we've supported them uh, in a great way around being able to go and move from the functional more to the optimistic, I would say, over these phases. So in those first few weeks, month, it was very much around, say, for Woolworths, when the stores are open, that we've got hand sanitizer in there, where delivery is going to be available to, what's on sale this week. You know, for the Commonwealth Bank, it was alerting people to part of their, you know, a big part of their app, which certainly wasn't experiencing high traffic before all of this, but certainly is now, which is called Benefits Finder, which is for people to go in there and understand what benefits are available then from the government. And Combank becomes an information service as much as you would expect to find from the news or, or government sources. And obviously all the work that, that Optus has done as well around connecting people in a time where their business has been disrupted um, in many different ways without their retail footprint in particular. So, so it's probably gone from, from the functional side of things and now we've adapted in different ways. You know, we've had an extraordinary amount of work out there in the market to guide people through, uh, work to communicate with um, not just um, the share market as well and investors, but also very much with the team and, and staff in particular around what's going on through that period. Um, those leaders of those businesses have stepped up um, enormously and, and I'm in awe of what they've been able to go and do with the change that they've been having to go and deliver. Uh, and then you work through, as you said, you know, TAB, Tourism Australia, Lexus uh, have all come out and I think have brought work to market that absolutely is at the core of their DNA and their unique tone. Uh, Lexus, we did some beautiful work for up, up front, which I thought absolutely reflected their premier positioning. It was campaign called Parked for a While and it was showing what we're going to do around service through this period where people obviously are more anxious around walking into dealerships uh, and Tourism Australia, I mean, you know, the brilliant people over there, they are a marketing agency that their product has been disrupted unlike any other product I think I've ever worked on. Uh, when we had to pivot from being an internationally focused business to then being domestic from the bushfires in January and February with the work that happened around um, holiday here this year. Then the borders close. So then we shift to a virtual environment. There's a whole bunch of work going out around how we engage people with the Australian experiences in a virtual space. Um, when we start to now build appetite and demand for when those borders open, it looks like um, New Zealand's going to be the first one in terms of what we are going to be looking at. So 
you know, it's 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 people moving quickly and responding and, and channels that are very different, working through ministers, working through CEO announcements, as opposed to traditional broadcast means, which has just meant a flexibility and agility for us. And in your time at MNC Saatchi, do you have a favourite ad or campaign that the agency has produced? Uh, that's tricky because I have three kids. So, so it's like asking me which one is uh, my favourite on any given day, as you said, which I could probably well, tell you today. That's your next question. Who's your favourite <laughs> kid? Um, but, but we'll start with favourite ad. <laughs> I'll, start, I'll start with, which I'm actually exceptionally proud of. We launched to national audiences some new brand work for Combank and the line We Can Together. Uh, and I love that for a number of reasons. You know, the executionally, I think it just captures a moment. We um, we asked um, the, the recording artist Thelma Plum to re-record the famous Powderfinger song these days um, as the soundtrack to that piece of film. And as I said to the team and to, to our clients as well, my personal opinion is we've been able to capture a piece of film that so vividly encapsulates not just the imagery of this pandemic shutdown, but also the mood as well. Uh, and it's and I think it'll go in a time capsule of what it was like here, but it's so true to Combank and it's so optimistic around some of the, the copy in there is, is very much around it's what we've gained through this time as opposed to what we've lost and, and how we're progressing forward as a, as a nation, but certainly as customers of Australia's largest bank. So, you know, that was a piece of film that I think captured the emotion, but that is just one part of an extraordinary integrated campaign that rolled out weeks before that and will continue to. So that's that's probably the, my favourite. And, and just from a production point of view, being able to be innovative around how you go and record original footage through this time and get that out there uh, has been something that is so far from my realm of capability. Uh, it's uh, I'm just uh, in awe, actually, of the team and how they've done it collectively, the marketing team at Combank, the people that have approved it, up highs as well as the agency and the production partners. And what about outside of MNC Saatchi? Who do you think is doing good work? Is there an ad you've seen that you thought, oh, I wish I worked on that? I haven't. I've been, maybe I've been spending too much time <laughs> watching The Last Dance on Netflix in high rotation because uh, I've certainly spent a lot of time doing that. Um, I, think, I think the trap at the moment is the... There's a lot of work looking the same out there, uh, and that's largely because of the production challenges that, that everyone's experiencing. I think everyone's yearning to get to understand how we can start moving forward and being truer to the DNA of the brands that we've you know, built over all these years and want to continue forward. So, um, so I think I think that's just a, a challenge out there. I thought there was some emotion in the Qantas work that came out, tapping into, I guess familiar symbols of what we appreciate for that brand and not having that brand top of mind for a while now. I thought that was timely, if anything. Um, and, and those familiar cues that we know is great in brand building as well, as opposed to talking to new messages around support or being open, etc. I thought that was moving the dial forward. So credit to them. But I think we're going to... I think we're about to go into a golden age of creativity again. I think there will be... Uh, this opportunity for people to recognise that there are new channels available to them to go and build brand. Uh, and it may not be this year because this year, I'm not naive, this is going to be a challenging year economically, absolutely. 
But I think as we move into next year, the creativity is just going to bubble up and explode uh, through all forms, which, which certainly we're excited about as well. So what does success look like for you this year then, given that it's such a disrupted and unpredictable one? Yeah, I think there's. I think every agency is probably looking at success in in different ways, and no doubt the great agencies have put a marker in, in a line in the sand and said, "Look, this is what we're going to do." For us, you know, very much long term job security uh, and building on the momentum that we have in a robust business that was really starting to get some serious momentum from a creativity perspective and a growth perspective. We want to continue that. Uh, but there's probably more fundamental success measures which come through, which are always there or should be there in a leadership group in a business, but maybe aren't the top priority. And I, I talk to the health and well-being of our people, actually, um, the mental health, the physical health, feeling over-communicated to and actually being over-communicated to with transparency. It's a difficult time where people are all dealing with this in very different ways and we're being incredibly clear around what it looks like to go back into the office over the next six months. And, and in many ways, success on how we manage that will really define how we operate over the next couple of years. Uh, you know, we've done uh, extensive staff surveys, which have given us a real view on both the excitement and the anxiety that exists uh, around what this next six months looks like. So having to manage that, is probably pulling on different levers that we ever have had to before. But uh, but if we can get to the end of the year where people feel supported, that they feel like we've taken flexible work arrangements to a new level, that, as I said, we are making financial calls in the business to prioritise that long-term job security, uh, as well as move forward with the plans that we had in the business. That's a lot to deal with, but it's certainly... Um, is something that if we don't have our people firing and feeling supported, then nothing's really going to come from that after that point. Now, one final question from me. You were Chief Strategy Officer before you became CEO and I remember when we were dissecting your appointment on a previous episode of the Umbrella Cast when you were announced, my boss, Tim Burrows, said to me that strategists don't have a good history of being CEOs and and that assessment wasn't something I was familiar with. So he sort of put me on the spot and said, you know, how do you think Justin will go because he's he's a strategist and strategists haven't traditionally made great CEOs. What do you make of that assessment? Are you going to buck the trend? Is it even a trend? I missed that episode. So I'll have to go back and, and tap into the conversation, find out what your answer was. Um, look, I think there's, uh, you know, my, my background is, is an interesting one. I started life as a management consultant. So I started life on the commercial side of business management and then um, was really trained to become a planner uh, in my late 20s um, by Todd Sampson at, back at Leo Burnett, which was the first agency I joined. Uh, who I guess is another strategist, incidentally, who went on to become a CEO and then a board member, actually, uh, and obviously has held some significant roles. So so maybe that's one thing which is going for me, which is at least a mentor early on that has has probably bucked the trend of what Tim was, Tim was describing. Uh, I think I feel well positioned to be able to go and, and take that forward. And, uh, and I'd also say there's a lot of 
you know, rubbish suits that have gone on to be CEOs as well. Uh, if that's the tradition, that was once the traditional, maybe creatives as well that have gone on to, to take on that role. Uh, look, there's this this period in particular um, acutely it makes us acutely aware of what's needed from a leadership perspective. And there was a great article that came out a couple of weeks ago in the Harvard Business Review about around the difference between managing and leading. And those two circles that at the moment are very much sitting on top of each other, they're almost concentric circles where we've had to deal with what's happening in the next hour, what's happening tomorrow, are our staff safe, can we deliver this ad, you know, can we go and buy that media? But very quickly, and we're seeing this with our clients already, which is how you start moving from managing to leading. And they're always going to overlap those two circles but very much around the vision of how we're going to go and take that forward. And I look at the last eight weeks or so, it's, it's been, it has been intense and it's been almost a mini MBA of the finite details of the operations of our business. Every line item on every P&L has been scrutinised to do what I was talking about before, which was the, the job security piece and how we're going to push forward. You know, so that's been brilliant for me because actually that's given me insight that I didn't have before. And what it has allowed me to do now is start to pull away and bring the right people to lead us forward. And I think strategists are very good at understanding, good strategists are very good at understanding what those opportunities are, being able to start to mobilise people behind them to go and get to that. And, you know, as a business, we've always operated in that manner. And so, look, let's hope uh, if that is a trend, it can be bucked for everyone's sake. All right, Justin Graham, CEO of MNC Saatchi, thank you for joining us on the Mumbrella Cast. Thank you very much. Thank you. Budget Direct is proud to announce it's once again won CanStar's National Award for Outstanding Value Car Insurance. The 2020 win makes it an unprecedented 14 years in a row that Budget Direct has won this coveted award. For more information, just head to the Budget Direct website. That's it for this week. Make sure you subscribe and do leave us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. Thank you, everyone. Thanks. Thank you. Toodle pip.